0: What's that sound? That's the sweet sound of bacon. I like bacon. You like bacon. I like a biblical narrative podcast with Andy Rigoni. You like a biblical narrative podcast with Andy Rigoni. So, what is this? Biblical details, historical context that puts you in the action. And with that, let's get started. God plays no favorites. God simply gives grace to those who pursue him. It's not about your bloodline, your social status, your bank account, your popularity, or even your position. In God's eyes, none of these matter. Race doesn't matter. Ethnicity doesn't matter. Wealth doesn't matter. Family lineage doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is a person who searches God out and is willing to be changed by him. That's it. Hey guys, welcome to Biblical Narrative Podcasts. My name's Andy, and I'm here to journey with you into what is known to be one of the most pivotal passages in all of the Bible. Peter's encounter with Cornelius unveils a whole new direction that God is taking with his Jesus followers. Even they didn't see it coming. Now, there's much to say here, but I don't want it to get in the way of the narrative itself. So, let's get started. "'Wow!' exclaims one of Peter's men, "'who spins around to take in the extravagant shops and buildings that line the street. "'This place is massive!' "'Not wishing to miss anything, the heads of the men turn in every direction. "'As the optionist guides the ten towards the center of the city, "'they notice the street become more congested with people and stay closer together "'so as not to lose one another in in a crowd.' Whoa, what is that? One of Peter's men points to an enormous pillared edifice situated in the middle of town. The optionist sidles up to the man, asking the question. That is a gift from your king. Wait, what? I don't understand, says the man. While mindful of the road behind him, the optionist begins walking backwards to provide a teaching moment to the others in the group. When the widow queen Salome died... Her son, Hyrcanus, succeeded her as king and high priest of Judea. However, there are many others who wanted that position. Everybody wanted to be king of Judea, and for the life of me, I have no idea why. The others continue to look around, but they become fascinated with learning about their own turbulent history from this Roman soldier's point of view. The optionist continues, Hyrcanus reigned for a total of three months. Yep, three months. His younger brother, Aristobulus, wasn't fond of the idea of addressing Hyrcanus as king, so he rebelled. In response, Hyrcanus sent his army of mercenaries after Aristobulus. Being mercenaries, though, loyalty wasn't exactly their strong suit. So, when Aristobulus upped the ante, many defected and followed the money. So the tides turned, and Hyrcanus surrendered both his kingship and priestly position to Aristobulus. Seeing the men drift a little from the huddle, the optionist yells, "'Come on, guys, stay with me. I'll keep sharing if you stay close. We have a date to keep.' The men fall back into step with the optionist, who keeps walking backwards. Hyrcanus wasn't too thrilled about the arrangement, and he was fearful that his life was in jeopardy. He wasn't wrong.' Hyrcanus had an advisor, Antipater, who just happened to be Herod the Great's father, who advised Hyrcanus to hide out with King Aretas of the Nabataeans. Now, the Nabataeans were busy making money over in Petra and as far north as Damascus at the time, so hiding there would be a welcomed idea. Antipater sweetened the deal with King Aretas by promising the return of several Arabian towns in exchange for their military effort to put Hyrcanus back on the throne of Judea crossing the road, the men take in a new view of the enormous arched aqueduct coming in from the north. Vying to keep their attention as they walk, the optionist continues. So, things heated up in Jerusalem, that is, until the Roman general Pompey defeated the remnants of the Seleucid Empire and dispatched his deputy to rule over the huge geographical region of Syria and beyond. With a new political ruler in play, both Aristobulus and Hyrcanus went to bribe the deputy, and Aristobulus offered a larger sum. So the deputy crushed the Nabateans, who were forced to give up Damascus with several other cities in Syria. But Pompey later arrived on the scene and turned the tables. Pompey favored Hyrcanus. Seeing the writing on the wall, Aristobulus went to hide in the Hasmonean fortress called Alexandrium, which is located on that hilltop that overlooks the Jordan River. Hey, you sure know a lot about our political history, responds one of Peter's men. I had no idea all that stuff happened. The optionist, enjoying this moment, winks at the guy and looks back at the group. Hyrcanus wasn't allowed to be king. Instead, He was set to resume his high priestly duties in Jerusalem, that is until Aristobulus' son, Antigonus, decided to proclaim himself king with the help of the Parthians from the north. Now get this, in an effort to remove Hyrcanus altogether, Antigonus literally bit Hyrcanus' ears off, which made him unfit for carrying out his high priestly duties. The Parthians then took Hyrcanus back to Babylon, and Antigonus ruled over Judea, for a time anyway. "'Serious? Ew!' says some of the men. The servants laugh at this. Enjoying the repulsion of the others, the optionist goes on. So when Antigonus took over Judea, Herod the Great, the son of Antipater, went to Rome to cry foul against Antigonus and his self-proclaiming ascent to the throne backed by the Parthians.' And as you can imagine, that didn't set well with the Romans. So in a surprise move, the Roman Senate appointed Herod the Great as king over Judea. This was a bold move and would change the political climate here and throughout the entire Mediterranean for good. With a wave of his hand, the optionist has the men circle around to take in the panoramic view from the other side of the enormous pillared temple. Herod the Great built that temple as a thank you to Augustus Caesar and the Roman Senate for installing him as king. The rest of the city, its commercial wealth, and its numerous reminders of Roman rule are reminders of who is in charge of whom. Two right turns, followed by a left, leads the group onto a side arterial that brings them in front of a well-decorated estate with a nicely appointed porch. With the optionist in front of the group, he steps up between a row of Doric pillars which hold up the portico. No sooner than he makes it onto the porch, the large wooden entry doors swing wide. With arms extended to prop open both doors, an impressively large figure fills the doorway. All look up to see a grinning Cornelius, who is anxious to bring everyone inside. Embracing his right-hand man, Cornelius quietly asks which one happens to be Peter. The optionist excuses himself for a moment and brings Peter into the entryway. Sir, may I introduce you to the man you have sent for? This is Peter, sir, the optionist proudly announces. In a gesture that even surprises his optionist, Cornelius falls to his knees and places his head between his arms at the feet of Peter. Dumbstruck at the worshipful intent, Peter impulsively reaches out to pull the administrator off the ground and back to his feet. Stand up, I am only a man just like you. With emperor worship having become commonplace since the meritorious reformations enacted by Augustus, that is Octavius, the confused and somewhat embarrassed, high-ranking officer rises back to full height. The others see such a stark contrast between the two men, if not by his size alone. Nearing just below the centurion's shoulders, a slightly intimidated Peter cranes his neck to look up at the hulking man. There is only one who should be worshipped. I am simply his servant and little else, Peter says. Hearing the voices of others in the, uh, and around the inner courtyard, Peter smiles at his host. Maybe you would like to introduce me to the others? Appreciating the change of subject, Cornelius turns around and invites his guests inside. Following in tow, Peter looks at the hands of the giant in front of him. Oh man, this guy could squash my head like a grape. I wonder how many heads he's actually squashed in his day, Peter thinks to himself. The entryway of the home opens into a larger atrium with a surrounding porch roof held up by columns and walls. As if on cue, dozens of heads turn towards Cornelius and Peter and rush to greet him with excited faces. Overwhelmed by the interest of so many Gentiles, Peter looks up at a smiling Cornelius and identifies the obvious tension that he and the other Jews are feeling at this very moment. You understand that this, what, what's happening right now, this sort of thing just doesn't happen. This evokes a confused look on the faces of Cornelius's family and guests. They don't understand the issue. Peter sees their confusion and continues, Look, I don't think it's a surprise to any of you to know that we Jews do not affiliate ourselves with non-Jews. Not if we don't have to, anyway. We just don't relax and befriend Gentiles. We never have. So please forgive me on this one. This is new ground for us. This class of cultures catches some in the group off guard. Some look at one another with gestures of confusion. Others exchange glances of contempt. Seeing how this isn't starting off on the right foot, Peter continues, But God has recently shown me that I should no longer think of anyone who isn't Jewish as unclean or less than me. So when Cornelius sent for me, I knew God was up to something. So I came without hesitation. This affords a warmer response. Peter then looks at Cornelius and asks, Please, tell me why you sent for me. All eyes shift from Peter to Cornelius. Yes, let's get to it then. Cornelius looks around to see the curious faces of his closest friends and family members who have come at his invitation. Four days ago in the mid-afternoon around this time of day, I was praying through the afternoon prayers, the Mincha. As many of you know, I am not Jewish by blood, but I worship the God of the Jews. I have adopted Jewish ceremonial customs and try to fashion my life around them accordingly the heads of his guests vigorously nod in affirmation as if to say yes we're well aware of your convictions let's get on with the story cornelius continues in the still of the afternoon and in the quietness of my room i kneeled to pray on my mat something was off though i thought i saw light flashing out of from the corners of my eyes I had that foreboding feeling that you get when you know you're not alone and an enemy is upon you. Being a lifelong soldier, I've been trained to respond to such matters. But what could train me for this? What training kicks in when you're paralyzed and unable to move? It was chilling to say the least out of nowhere, and appeared a large man in front of me who filled the room with a radiant light. It was like the sun was present in front of me. This raises eyebrows. Bigger than you, one of his friends responds. Wow. Undeterred from telling the story, Cornelius points to one of the rooms adjacent to the courtyard. In fact, it was that room. Anyway, The huge figure addressed me by name and said, Cornelius, your daily prayers and kind acts have been noticed by God. Send messengers to Joppa and have them find Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner nearby the sea. Bring him here. He has a message for you. So I did. I sent for you and have been anxiously awaiting your arrival. Those standing and seated throughout the atrium shift their gazes upon Peter once more. Expectant and curious, the room grows quiet. A captivated Peter takes in the man in front of him. This is actually happening, Peter thinks to himself in amazement. I can't believe what Jesus shared several years ago is now a reality unfolding before my very eyes. Lost in his mind, Peter is transported back to the time spent with the rabbi in Caesarea Philippi, another Roman city filled with Gentiles and no Jews. When Jesus spoke into his life and predicted this very moment, he said, You are Peter, and upon this rock, that is, this foundation I have laid for you, which is to become the foundation you will lay for others, I will build my church on the foundation you lay. Peter, I am with you, and the powers of hell will not win this war. I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and as my representative, Peter, whatever you decide on earth will be a reflection of what has already been determined in heaven. You are my servant, Peter, and I am calling you to be the guardian of the Holy Spirit. I am entrusting you to be my key witness of the things that I will do in your midst, so be ready when the time comes." You are my spirit-empowered representative. Peter responds under his breath. Thank you, Lord, for such an honor. You're changing the world right here, right now. Another memory abruptly confronts Peter. Arriving at the top of the Mount of Olives, he and the other disciples were excited to hear of God's next steps. So they asked the risen Jesus, Lord, are you finally restoring the kingdom to Israel? Jesus gave a surprising response. He said, That's not up to you or me. The Father has already made that determination. Your next step is to receive the power of heaven when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Once he comes, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even the remotest parts of the earth. Then Jesus ascended into heaven before the very eyes. Yet another epiphany hits Peter, giving him the aha moment of a lifetime. The Jews in Jerusalem and Judea, check. The Samaritans, check. Oh, wow. Lord, is this the beginning of the remotest parts of the earth? Who else but the Gentiles could make this happen? Peter looks around to see several faces waiting for whatever might come next. In what seems like slow motion, Peter looks back at his own men to see if they're capturing this moment in time he wonders to himself, do they understand what's happening here? He then turns to face the crowd. Addressing his waiting audience, Peter says, it's settled then. God does not favor one group over another. It doesn't matter where you might come from, whose blood might be coursing through your veins or your status in this world. Regardless to your background, God favors those who obey him and treat others right. The door has swung open and God's favor is available to anyone who seeks to be changed by him. This is the message he sent the children of Israel, that peace with God is possible through Jesus, our long-awaited Savior, who has come to us. The room is deathly silent and Peter continues, I know you've heard the stories of what Jesus started in Galilee and later in Judea and beyond. At first, the prophet John warned the sons of Israel about how they weren't living rightly before God or others. Sure, they obeyed the law, but God wasn't pleased because their hearts were far from his. John offered baptism to those who wanted to change their ways. When baptized, the Jewish people would repent of their bad habits and live their lives in a way that pleased God. You also have heard that God supernaturally placed the Holy Spirit upon this Jesus of Nazareth, whereby he would demonstrate the power of God. He did the miraculous in front of thousands. Jesus went throughout Galilee, Judea, and even Samaria, finding those oppressed by the devil and liberating them from their woes. He healed the blind, he healed the deaf, the crippled, and even the sick. He even raised people from the dead. And we apostles watched what he did throughout Judea, Jerusalem, and beyond. What's truly heart-wrenching is that he was rejected by his own people. So they crucified him and put him to death. This creates a stir in the group. He was killed by his own people? Even after all of the good that he did? One of the men asks. Yes, they executed him in a horrible way. But here's the best part. God raised him from the dead and back to life on the third day. But he was different. He had a new body, not like we understand, but an eternal, immortal body without limits. I saw him. I spent time with him. I had meals with him, as did 500 others over the 40 days he spent with us before rising from the earth and going back to the Father. Can this be? Did this happen? Many ask of themselves and one another. Reading their surprise, Peter goes on. This Jesus commissioned us to go everywhere and to share what we experienced with him. He ordered us to testify that Jesus has been appointed by God to judge all of creation, the living and the dead. The prophets of Israel promised and warned us about his coming, and he finally has come and lived among us. The prophet said that whoever believes in him will have their sins permanently forgiven, and this permanent forgiveness would be based upon his reputation, not ours or anything that we've done. Wow! God is amazing, says one of Cornelius' relatives. Others begin to share similar statements of praise. As a fresh snow melt turns a trickling stream into a raging river, the group begins to rapidly offer words of praise. Peter and his fellow Jewish witnesses take in the crescendo of praise, the swelling of voluminous voices offering worship to God. Some begin shouting other languages, which doesn't necessarily surprise anyone. That is, until one of Peter's men recognizes shouts of praise as being uttered in Hebrew. Moving right next to Peter's ear, he asks in a normal voice, Hey, did you just hear that? Peter responds, Hear what? I'm hearing a lot of things right now suddenly a number of Gentiles begin yelling praises to God in Hebrew, a language only known by well-studied Jews. Peter then looks at his fellow witnesses and shakes his head. Uh, yeah, I think it's pretty clear now. While the symphony of praise continues, Peter looks at his men who stand in awe, completely motionless and with mouths agape. Peter gains their attention to form a huddle. In a loud voice, he asks, So, do any of you object to baptizing these folks? It's clear that they have received the same Holy Spirit we've received. Like I said, God plays no favorites. Peter's fellow witnesses agree, and Peter gathers the larger group together. People, it is clear to me now that God offers the same Holy Spirit to you Gentiles as he has to us Jews. He is empowering you just as he has with us. God has leveled the playing field, and He has made life with Him available to you in the same way He has to us. Let us baptize you in the name of Jesus, so that you may take on your new identity as followers of the risen Lord as we are. Folks, there is way too much going on here to cover it all, but one takeaway is this. God clearly demonstrated that his chosen ones are those who seek after him wholeheartedly, Jewish or Gentile. It makes no difference to God. If God shows no partiality towards the human race, one good question to ask is, well, why should we? Now I know there's a lot much more to this. But I love how God simply empowers the least likely characters with the Holy Spirit. The Gentiles didn't see it coming, and the Jews thought this to be the ultimate slap in the face. And yet, there it is. God showing up to those who seek Him, no matter who they are or what they've done. Pretty cool, right? Well, certainly reflects, causes me to reflect on a few things, especially with regards to the way I treat others. Do I treat others with contempt? Ultimately, here's the thing, is that they are people that God would love to have seek Him. And as we demonstrate the goodness of God in their lives, maybe they just will. All right, well, that's it for this week, guys. Have a wonderful week. May the Lord bless you, and we'll see you next time.